Podcast today is Friday, July the 28th, 2023. This is episode 3346 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday. That means it's time for an expert council QA show for the week. Here's what I've got for you today. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, I've got Dr. Paul discussing the fact that the woke capitalism bubble is starting to break. I haven't listened to this one yet myself. I actually did, but. Uh, little editing snafu in the original version, only Dan McAdams and Chris Rossini's audio was uh, available. So I didn't hear what Dr. Paul said about this. I think I'll have something to add, but I'm going to wait to listen to it with you to see what that might be. Jeff Lawton will talk about sealing a failed pond from a previous landowner. Josh the Redgate Busher will talk about his thoughts about the safety of Teflon cookware. I'll give you my thoughts as well on that. Professor C.J. Kilmer has a story about bugging out for you. The first en masse bug out into the country that was recorded in history on any significant level, how long ago was it? It happened during the Bronze Age, and we're going to hear all about it today. Nick Ferguson will talk about selecting trees for areas with heavy clay pan soils, and we will talk about our generic batteries for 20-volt DeWalt tools worth considering with Tim Toolman Cook. I don't actually have an anchor segment today. I'm going to play something for you that's kind of for fun, especially for those of you that weren't there. And I think those of you that were there will enjoy it. At the 15-year anniversary party, I got roasted by Nicole Sauce. And it was one of the best roastings ever. And I have to tell you that I thought when she started talking, she just opened with a joke or two. And it was like the second joke hit, and it was like, oh, I know what this is. Well, Hatch, who does all our AV stuff for us at workshops... Uh, he brought some gear there, gave her a microphone, and recorded it, and got that over to me. I was also gifted a really cool gift, and that was recorded too, but I don't think it plays well in an audio-only format. Uh, I'm going to be putting that gift together uh, today. We're going to make a video about it, thanking the folks uh, who chipped in to get it for me. It was very generous, and it was actually something I've wanted for like 20 years. And it's only now that they've made them small enough and affordable enough that it even makes sense like to put out in my backyard kitchen. It's called a salamander broiler, so I'm, I'm going to cut that out. But my wife also did something she never does. She spoke in public, and she did really good, so I'm going to play that, and then I'll come back at the very end and say a few words, and we'll close up the show for today. But I think if you want a good laugh on a Friday, Nicole Sauce could have a whole new career in just roasting people. It was freaking awesome. And if you've never been roasted, put it on your bucket list to... to to impact enough in the world that somebody thinks it's worth roasting you because it's an awesome experience. With that, let's go ahead and drop into the Ron Paul Liberty highlights for the week and hear about the busting of the woke capitalism bubble, uh, Ukraine's counteroffensive failure, uh, and once again, those with facts were ignored from Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini talking about how the market always defeats the Karens of the world. This past week, there was some news coming out that uh, maybe BlackRock is not doing so well. But there's been hints of that all along. The system was flawed from the beginning. There's something cracking here. You know, it's not going to work. The market is screaming and hollering. This can't work, can't work. So right now, it sort of reminds me of what, was what it was like 
leading up to 1971 when something has to give. Back then, it was the government had to give, and they made gold legal again, and they allowed the market to sort it out. And that, of course, was a time when gold went from $35 an ounce up to, at that time, up to $800 in a very short period of time. You know, I think the Aspen meeting this summer, uh, it was agreed Larry Fink talked and was on the defensive. He says, we've, we've sort of dropped this thing about ESG. <laughs> and and uh, I, I think that's rather comical because uh, people knew that this would happen, and, they, and yet the people went ahead. It wasn't because they really believed in it. Some of them did, and they thought, oh, we'll be environmentalists, and they're going to keep our money and take care of it. But that, that uh, it didn't work out exactly that way. And I think this whole thing is going to get worse because it's going to be combined with the correction from the, the regular malinvestment of, uh, of inflation along with uh, all this emphasis on ESG type of in investment. Uh, that's why I think the bubble is big and the bubble is bursting. Now we have the Wall Street Journal starting to spill the beans a little bit. Put on that first clip if you can. This is the article, and everyone's talking about this article because um, it's rare when the mainstream media tells some truth, and when it does, it's shocking. The article is titled, Ukraine's Lack of Weaponry and Training Risks and Training Risks Stalemate in Fight with Russia. And go to the next one. Here is the operative phrase. When Ukraine launched its big counteroffensive this spring, Western military officials knew Kiev didn't have all the training or weapons from shells to warplanes that it needed to dislodge Russian forces. But they hoped Ukrainian courage and resourcefulness would carry the day. It's an astonishing sentence, Dr. Paul, because they knew they didn't have what it takes to do what they said they were going to do, which is take back uh, parts of, of Ukraine that Russia had occupied. They knew they couldn't do it, so their strategy was simply to hope that they did it. I mean, I've never seen such cynicism on display before. That is a real stretch to justify what they were doing and risk the lives of many people and lives were lost. And this is, uh, you know, it's propaganda. And whether it was the uh, Mideast wars that went on, how propaganda was used to pump it up and get the people, you know, annoyed <clears throat> to the point where if you didn't support the wars, you were unpatriotic and here <laughs> doing the same thing. Yeah, and the people who warned that, that this would be the outcome were completely ignored. I mean, we've talked about people like Colonel McGregor and Larry Johnson and others, Scott Ritter. They've all speak, spoken at our conferences. They were saying this all along, and they were just dismissed as, oh, just pro-Russian uh, defeatists. But, but at the same time, you could also talk about how this is what happens when you believe your own propaganda. I mean, it's a circular reasoning when people like McGregor and Ritter and those are saying, look, based on our experience... This is what's going to happen. This is not what you're saying. They just refuse to listen, uh, like they did with COVID and other things, and something we're going to talk about later today. Um, they just refuse to listen and refuse to consider any outside voices that would that would interfere with the narrative that they had, you know, constructed. Chris. Yes, Dr. Paul, it is good news. Um, we're talking about uh, the market. How the market cannot be defeated. It cannot be overpowered in the long term. Now, what exactly is the market? Well, it's very simple. It's billions and billions of individual decisions that we each make every single day at all moments, like right now. We're, you know, we always choose. I value this over this. I value this over this. Right now, I value speaking to our audience more than anything else I could be doing right now. 
And this is what 7 billion people do all the time. We're constantly, I value uh, this more than $10. I value $10 more than this. So that's what the market is. It is, that's why it's so powerful and cannot be overturned. But there are always the few uh, that have a problem with this. They say, no, you're going to value what I tell you to value. And that's the authoritarians, all the utopians, all the busybodies, the central planners. And they try to manipulate the market. And they can. They can distort the market. They can manipulate it. But it's always temporary. It's always a fool's errand. Because in the end, the market always overpowers them. It smashes their schemes. And this has been done throughout all time by kings, by oligarchies, by democracies, by totalitarians. They all try to say, no, you're going to value what we say you're going to value. And they're always doomed to failure. So that's, you know, BlackRock is just yet another example. They came up with this ESG scheme, this environmental, social, and governance, and now they're backtracking. They even put an oil guy, the Saudi oil CEO, on their board. And uh, they said that, you know, what Ron DeSantis did in Florida by pulling their money out of BlackRock and all the decisions that have been made by these, uh, by p people boycotting these woke corporations, this is all an agenda that's trying to be pushed into a market, and the market is saying no. So finally, BlackRock is now starting to at least, you know, go backwards. I'm sure they're still committed to their, their scheme, but the market is overpowering them and will win in, in the end. So honestly, Chris's take at the end fits very well with Dr. Paul's take at the beginning. So let's start there. Yeah, this is exactly what's going on. And BlackRock has pretty much 180 outed from where they were a couple of years ago. BlackRock has basically flicked off the ESG thing, kind of like a nasty booger. Like, we never we never really meant that. Kind of like the government saying nobody ever made you get a vaccine, right? That's kind of what they've done. Um, yeah, we you know, we're trying to do the right thing and all, but we're not married to this, even though they were pretty much the biggest uh, reason so many corporations got in, involved in it. Because they manage, it's something like $9 trillion of assets, and they were literally telling these companies, look, if you don't play the ESG game, we're not going to buy your stock. And that's, that's a big thing to be left out of when you're trying to be in something like the S&P 500. And you want to be part of that, right? So, or the Dow Jones Industrial Average. You, you've you got you to gotta play the game. So a lot of these companies went out and they played the game, and they did it far more than necessary. And this is what I mean. They appointed people into positions of significant power and control in their company based on who they were versus what they could do. And you might think this is common in corporate America. You know, this guy gets a job here. But generally speaking, he's also competent. You know, there's a revolving door between private industry and lobby firms in the United States federal government where people that were cabinet members or high-ranking members of committees in the Senate or the House go to work for, like, Pfizer, and then they go to work for, like, a lobbying firm, and then they go back to the... Like, that all happens. So they're hired for who they are, but they're also hired because they can get shit done. Whereas these people were hired because... Because they're gay, because they have purple hair, because they're a you know a young millennial or an older Gen Z, and they 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 fit well, and they understand TikTok influencers, and gee, let's put a gay dude on a beer can. What uh, that is the quintessential beer of the American working man that drives a pickup truck and works a construction job. What could go wrong putting a tranny on that can? Oh gee, we lost like thirty billion dollars. Oops, oops. Turns out people don't want this shit, and the people that do want this shit don't have any money. 
Okay? They don't, they're all broke, and they're all miserable, and they all yell and scream, and they move like a mob, but they don't buy stuff. And right now, with the economy being completely screwed by the same type of thinking from the government, they have less money than they normally do. So they'll raw-raw Tuckums at Target, but they're not going to go buy them. You've got a small group of wealthy liberals, mostly white people, who are the biggest racists in America, that have money to spend on this nonsense and subject their children to this nonsense, but they're not enough to move the market needle one freaking degree. The people that have money are the people with brains, and people with brains don't buy into this shit. So when you push them far enough, they simply abstain from doing business with the people sticking in their face. Now, I wrote an article about this. It's on a site called Blogstack. And it was the difference between withholding your business versus an outright boycott. And there's a very different thing going on there. And I recommend you guys, if you follow me on Noster, just take my pub key and go to Blogstack.io, and uh, you're, pro you're already following me probably on Blogstack. And uh, you can see the articles I'm publishing there. That's just something new in the Noster universe, new-ish in the Noster universe. It's like the Noster version of Substack. But the point I made in it is that the average person who decides, I'm not going to buy from these people, 90% of the shit they're buying is still from woke companies. And you literally can't not do business with woke companies today because everything you buy is from companies that are woke companies because of the kind of shit that BlackRock pulled with this ESG nonsense. But even with that, Even when people are not directly withholding their business, do you think these people that they've given these positions of control and power have any idea what they're doing? The perfect way to understand this is look at this guy. I can't think of his name now. He's the, he's the, 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 the transgender, gay dude thing. I don't know what he is. Non-binary guy that steals luggage, like expensive luggage from hotel, uh, uh, airports. He got caught doing that. That's in charge of our nuclear waste disposal. This is a dude with a fetish for other dudes dressed like dogs in leather dog suits. Okay? Okay. Now, I would put that all aside if this dude actually had like a degree in nuclear energy. He doesn't know anything about nuclear waste disposal at all. He has no relevant experience at all. Now, that's political. But these companies are hiring people just like this. And they're running these companies into the ground in a bad economy where you can't afford mistakes. So you see a massive correction coming, and nothing is more telling than this. All of a sudden, BlackRock wants a Bitcoin ETF, and they're accidentally on purpose telling the truth about Bitcoin actually being good for the environment because of how it, it, it utilizes stranded energy and can encourage the development of all these alternative sources of energy by having something to do when you have surplus times where you can monetize it. It's amazing the 180 out they had. Now, um, Dan's take on Ukraine, I'm not going to say much about it other than he's spot on. I'm telling you what I've been telling you since this started. The truth is not being told by any side, but our side is really, really, really lying, and they know that they're lying, and they know that the average idiot still believes them. Okay, but I just want to point out a few things that have happened in the past year. All those little Ukrainian flags, with very few exceptions, have disappeared from everybody's, you know, Twitter profile or Facebook. It's all gone. It's like you know, it's like there's a number of those are kind of akin to the number of people still wearing masks. There's certain deluded people who will never let go of it. Mrs. Ukraine, who I told you it was fake when it happened, and some of you got really mad at me, right? Who was going to go fight 
the freaking Russians, and she's dressed up in like $300 leather gloves, decked out in fashion attire with a freaking AR, except you look at the AR and people like me told you right out of the gate, that is an airsoft gun. That they painted the friggin' flash suppressor so it didn't look like an airsoft gun. And she ain't doing shit. And you know where she is now? Tour in the world with her five-month-old baby. You have been lied to from the beginning about this. A stalemate. This is not a stalemate. This is... Russia took the territory that they said they were going to take with little tiny pockets that they didn't. And said, we're defending this territory. And Ukraine's been unable to move them. I'm sorry if you don't like it, and I'm sorry if you hate Putin. That's that's advantage Russia. By the way, that Russian offensive that I talked about yesterday, it's beginning. It's just beginning. And it's going to happen, just like I predicted from what I've seen in the last two days. Now, that's not me tap dancing about being right. That's me being a pragmatist. And this is one of the biggest things I wanted to say today, since I don't have an anchor segment. It is time for the people of the world to grow the fuck up and start analyzing situations pragmatically versus what you want to be true. I don't want there to be a war between Russia and Ukraine. I don't want any of this shit to happen, but it is. I don't want Russia being stronger than they already are, but it's happening, and it is happening, and it's going to continue happening as long as we keep being stupid. That's an honest assessment. That's not raw-rawing either side. This is, a, this is a lot to me, and some of you that are, that are upset about this are too young to remember it. When Iran and Iraq were fighting a war and we picked a side, okay? It wasn't that long ago, but for some of you, you weren't even born yet. Picking a side was stupid. Picking a side was stupid, and when you said that, you were attacked all the way back then, and then some bitch... Some bitch, the side we picked ended up being a bigger problem for us. We killed the dude that we funded, took over the country, fucked it up even worse, and today it's worse off than it was before we touched it, like everything else that we've ever touched. When you touch things, and you always make things worse when you touch them, stop touching things. That's what I want out of our government. Stop touching things. When you fix the roads that you're so enamored with, when people like me say we don't need government, you know, when they act, when the roads are not crumbling infrastructure in this country, when people aren't living on and shitting in the streets, when we don't have veterans killing themselves every day, when we don't have homeless veterans on the street, when we don't have people in this country that are worried whether or not they're going to eat tomorrow, When you fix all of that and the 40 other things that you have fucked up in this country, we can talk about helping people in other countries. And I know some people aren't going to agree with me when I say the country I'm going to say we should help next. But remember, it's after we fix all the fucked up shit. It would be Mexico. Why Mexico? Because they're our neighbor and Canada doesn't need help. We have no business sticking our, our shit in Europe and Asia, the Middle East, and frickin' India, and frickin' Australia, and the frickin' South Pacific, when our shit is fucked up at home. Period. Even if you're not an anarchist like me, even if you are a statist and you really think the government really wants to help, yeah, really? Then get your shit together, guys. Fix this shit right here before we worry about Ukraine. Secure my border before you worry about somebody else's border. It's common sense, which is why they won't do it. And that 
will fill in for the fact that I have no anchor segment today. With that, let's move on. Before we do, I do want to let you guys know about something uh, today that I think is pretty freaking cool. It is the T-Spaz item of the day. I've decided to have a, tr- a, 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 uh, a change-up today for you guys. So I found something today. This is one of the few times I've put something out as an item of the day that I don't own. I have not bought this. I don't think I need to, though. These are four foot by eight foot galvanized raised beds. They look like a great big uh, galvanized stock tank, oval shape, but eight foot long, four foot across, no bottom. I saw this pop up as a deal on Amazon, and I'm like, what the hell is shipping going to be on this? Well, I looked at it. It's under 150 bucks a unit plus a $10 additional coupon on them. And again, they're two foot deep raised beds. And the way they're able to ship them, and I still don't get it, okay? They're two pieces. They're two pieces. So uh, they basically nest inside each other. So the, the shipping size is like four by four by two. That's still a huge box. I don't get it, but Amazon wants to do it. So I got to tell you, I probably won't buy any of these. And the reason I won't buy any is I have all my raised beds that I really need installed. If I was putting in raised beds out of the gate today, I don't think you can build a four foot by uh, eight foot by two foot deep raised bed in lumber prices for 150 bucks. Plus, you have to build it. These you have to throw some nuts and bolts in to get and screw it together. So I really recommend looking at these. And even though it says they ship in two pieces, I'm thinking they might ship in more. Because when I look at the picture, it looks like there's multiple places it's bolted together. I don't care. This is, again, the same material that they make stock tanks out of. This will last longer than probably you. And putting it in place is simple and easy. And what I would do putting these in brand new, I would lay down two layers of weed blocker fabric uh, in a pattern that would be at least two feet in all sides of the thing and set it right on top of there, put my fill on it, and then throw wood mulch or gravel pathing around it, and you're not going to have any runners coming up into it. It's just a simple, brilliant thing, and I kind of want to justify putting a couple here. I just I don't need them, but, you know, sometimes you talk yourself into things. Anyway, these would make an awesome setup, too. Two of them uh, separated by about six foot with a couple uh, 16-foot cattle panels in between them, acting as arches, so you walk between them, and you've got the arches kind of like I do in my garden, and it would be so simple. Just here's the thing. Fill them up before you install the cattle panels, all right? Because then they're going to be heavy and they're not going to move. Anyway, with that, let's move on. Next up today, what have I got for you? Jeff Lawn's going to talk about a pond. Now, I don't. I didn't listen to this one either. I usually pre-screen them. Uh, the guy sent me some pictures with this. I forwarded those to Jeff. I looked at it, and I'm like... And let's see what Jeff says. My instinct on this is I would start pretending there, it's a pond site, and I wouldn't even worry about the fact that there was ever a pond there, and I would do it as a new installation. But I could be wrong. Let's see what Jeff says. Hi, Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia, and I have a question here about sealing a dam. Um, small pond, actually. It's not very big. Um, how would I go about it? What's the easiest way that we find to seal these things up if we get a problem? Um, apparently a lot of clay has been brought in, but I can only see in the photos cracking at the bottom. Now, the easy way to do this and just get it done or once and for all is to use bentonite. 
and polymer. We use both. So what we do is um, we use a product called Damit, D-A-M-I-T. It's made by Shalax Industries, S-H-A-L-E-X. And they make the, the Damit, that's the trademark, Dam Sealer. And they come in 15 liter buckets. Now I know that's metric, you just have to do the com conversion. So it's a 15 liter bucket. And when you go on to the shalex, S-H-A-L-E-X, dot com, dot A-U website, you will see there's a calculator in there about how much to use. So you can apply it to the dam empty or you can apply it to the dam so you're spreading it on the water so it sucks the polymer into um, the, um, the leaks. But what we do, what we tend to do just to guarantee this right, is we work with a dry dam and in your photos, your dams, your pond, your dam, same thing. In Australia, we call it a dam if you call what you call a pond. Let's call it a pond. You get your pond dry and then we rotary hoe the inside with a tractor and a rotary hoe. Or if they're steep and you can't get a rotary hoe in there, you get an excavator with a tooth on uh, a ripping tooth on the arm and you rough and rip up the surface or you use the teeth on the rock bucket to rip the surface. So you rough up and rip the surface to a few inches deep. Then we put on bentonite. How much bentonite do we put on? The same amount as one 15 liter bucket covers, which is 150 square meters, roughly. So that's a 1,600 square feet. So we use, let's talk in feet for a second, 1,600 square feet to one ton of bentonite. And we spread it all over that area. And then we spread the bucket of polymer so you've got bentonite going on to the rough surface first and then polymer going on second then you smooth it off rake it off and then you compact it you 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 run over it with a roller now you can get a roller that's room uh, that runs on a remote so it's a remote roller you can hire them a vibrating sheets foot roller where you can actually direct it with a remote device so you can stand to one side and rem remotely control this roller, unpack it and pack it and pack it and pack it down. Pack it super tight. So you've got the bentonite, you've got the polymer, and you've got it packed. And, and we do the whole surface area that is going to be covered with water. We go all the way around the whole surface area. And usually that 100% locks are all up so uh, i think you would have similar products in america but if you look at how to measure your dam or pond on the shalex.com.au website s-h-a-l-e-x dot c-o-m dot a-u website you'll see exactly how to measure the area how much polymer to use, and every 15 liter bucket, we back it up with one ton of bentonite. Put the bentonite on the roughed up area first, then the polymer, then pack her all in all the way over, 
And then if you can, fill it up with water from another source. If not, you're waiting for rain. Better to fill it up because you can fill it up much more passively than have the runoff from the rain. And it'll be sealed. That's the way we do it. And it more or less works every single time. Unless there's some slips in the landscape. Um, the website shows you exactly how to do all this. It's pretty easy. Um, and we're getting great results. All right. Thanks. What he said will work, especially with the polymer added to the bentonite. And looking at people, and again, this is armchair surfing YouTube stuff, but in looking at projects where people have put in dams and they did not have sufficient clay to seal the dams, and so they brought in bentonite sealer, the ones that seem to have done the best to me actually mixed the bentonite in to the first couple inches of the soil rather than doing it as an independent layer. Especially this site has quite a bit of clay in it already. Now Jeff may differ with that, I don't know, but I would in this case, because you're talking about a monetary investment, get some help from someone who's, who does this like locally puts in ponds and stock tanks and stuff and has worked with bentonite before, and I would at least roll that past them, is should we do it as a direct application or the other way? Um, the reason to do this is if you, if you don't create sort of a bit of a conglomerate with it, and I have an expensive hole. Now, mine was on top of rock, and that's partly why it failed, but I believe that it wouldn't have failed had we done what I'm saying and mixed it with some of the dirt. It is more likely to kind of crack, I guess would be the way to put it, and slip and slide and create an opening than if it's conglomerate, you know, basically made almost like an epoxy with other soil. That seems to work better. And when I've looked at people that have put in ponds and done a straight, just bentonite versus people that have tilled it in a little bit, and it still looks like it's all bentonite. So if you're thinking about you put down... You know, let's say two to four inches of bentonite, and that's going to swell, right? Let's just say you put down two inches of bentonite, and you till in two inches. Well, the, 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 the existing soil is not going to more than double in size, but the wet bentonite will. And what I've seen people do is like that, and then one thin layer of bentonite on top, and then compaction. Now, the other side of it, I've never seen anybody do it with the polymer. And so adding the polymer may make what I said. So I'm just saying, if I'm going to put this much money into a relatively small pond, I'm going to try to get some local expertise involved if possible. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about Teflon Cookware with Josh, the Renegade Butcher. Hey there, TSP audience. It's Josh, the Renegade Butcher, coming back to you again with another answer for the expert council. Uh, Jack sent this one to me this morning. He said it's uh, it's kind of in my wheelhouse, but uh, if I didn't want to go ahead and kick it back to him. I, I, it's an interesting uh, discussion, interesting question, and uh, I'm going to weigh in on it and kick it over to Jack. I'm sure he's actually going to have uh, probably some more input on it than, uh, than I would, but I'll give you my perspective on it. Um, Kieran writes in, uh, sends a YouTube, e uh, YouTube uh, email, YouTube video in the email to Jack, and he says, hey, Jack, my question is, how toxic is food which has been cooked with nonstick pans, assuming the food itself was healthy food to begin with? Most of the video referenced above is about the byproducts and waste products 
from the manufacturing of Teflon being dumped in rivers and landfills by manufacturing companies. But this video does not address the issue of transfer of toxins from the nonstick uh, pans to the food. Uh, and I did go and watch that video. Very informative video on uh, big companies like DuPont and uh, 3M. Um, PFOAs that were commonly used uh, well, for the last <laughs> multiple decades in uh, the application of Teflon and other things like that. And uh, some of the stuff that they've switched to nowadays that it's questionable if it's any different or any better. Um, and he's right. That video did uh, highlight more the industrial dumping, um, the industrial waste, uh, polluting of farmlands, and uh, obviously some of the things that these big companies do, um, these big major chemical companies do, can be quite atrocious. Um, I'm not any... Uh, Anybody who wants to around and, and cry that uh, the EPA needs to save us, uh, I don't think government's the answer necessarily. But uh, I do think that if you don't like the things that companies that are applying Teflon to everything that they can are doing, uh, a good thing you could do would be uh, don't buy Teflon products. And eventually, if there's no money in that, companies are going to stop making things like that. So, uh, but this is uh, also another important uh, aspect of why we should do our research on uh, newer technologies and understand them before we just jump in and adopt them. Um, that said, there's also a lot of buzz and fear porn around things. Um, the real question is how much of that stuff, how much of this junk that uh, our whole environment's been polluted with and filled with all these, you know, for toxic forever chemicals, how much of it actually makes it into your food while cooking with Teflon? Um, now, there may be information that I'm missing. There may be something that I haven't dug up, but from the research that I've done and from what I have found, there's very little chance that something that is in the Teflon itself is going to transfer into your food through leakage as you're cooking uh, the food. Uh, the known hazards are if you get the pan too hot and some sources say 500 degrees Fahrenheit. Some people say it's 300 Celsius, which is 570 Fahrenheit. Some say the main effects are over 700 degrees, but if you get that Teflon pan too hot, there is a risk of something called a, basically a, a polymer breakdown. Uh, the binders within the Teflon itself can actually start to break down, release fumes. They can give you something that is known as a Teflon flu. Uh, this is similar to uh, what uh, was done early on in some of this uh, testing where these companies would actually lace cigarettes of their workers with uh, with some of these PFOAs and and to have them smoke them, uh, supposedly voluntarily, and then found out that a ton of them got flu-like symptoms. No kidding. No kidding. Um, my main issue with this is it's not hard to get a pan over 500 degrees in a, in a cooking setting. Um, and you probably shouldn't be cooking anything in a thin-walled Teflon pan and getting it that hot, no. Uh, unless you're using like maybe an Asian-style wok which are commonly coated in Teflon if you get the cheap ones. Uh, but that said, most users aren't going to be aware of that. I'm a big fan, and I know Jack is too, of older school cookware, of, uh, of cast iron. And I know Jack's a big fan of, uh, of carbon steel pans as well. I haven't gotten into the carbon steel pans that much, but uh, I've got a pretty good uh, cast iron collection, and I really do enjoy them. They are more work. And by more work, I don't mean that they are a hard thing to deal with at all. No, they take certain care requirements, and there are some things that you need to be cautious of, and there's a little bit more time and effort invested in it. You have to be more conscious about how you take care of, of the pan. But I promise you, 
a good, well-seasoned, uh, real metal pan can be just as non-stick as anything Teflon. Now, if you do have some Teflon pans and you're not ready to just throw them out the, out the window, just because some of us, you know, prefer the old school type of cookware, and I think you should too, uh, what can you do to minimize some of, uh, some of the issues? Well, I think the primary way you're going to be able to consume any of these products that are in the Teflon versus uh, <laughs> overheating it and consuming fumes is going to be through Teflon scraping off of the pan. I know if you've, if you've had a Teflon pan or anything Teflon coated for any length of time and you've used it, you'll see eventually the stuff flakes off. Um, either it's just through regular scrubbing and in the wash, and that's probably the best case scenario. Or it's through using and scratching the bottom of the pan with metal utensils. Because no matter how nonstick something is, it doesn't mean something can't burn. It doesn't mean you can't build up burnt crust on the bottom of that pan. And you're going to curse yourself, and you're going to be using a metal spoon or a spatula, and you're going to scrape the bottom of that, and a lot of that stuff scrapes off. And it does end up in your food. Um, and from what I've read, or at least what from what the internet tells you, uh, that the flakes that come off from it are not harmful, cannot harm you. They don't break down in digestive, they, or digestion and they pass right through you. What I'll say to that is, as far as we know right now, based on the studies we have, there have been plenty of times when 20, 30 years down the line, we find out that, no, that really was harmful the whole time. We just told you it wasn't because we didn't know for sure or someone hid the evidence. I'm not one to preach fear when it comes to things like this. I don't want to panic over everything. I, however, will say I personally don't want to consume little flakes of scratched off chemical soup that was sprayed on a thin walled pan. I have no definitive evidence to tell you exactly how it could be poisoning you or what is in it is bad for you. But, <laughs> but, just basic logic and reasoning tell me that it's not going to be inherently good for you. There is no net positive of consuming pieces of Teflon. But before I get off my soapbox and stop preaching to you about how we probably shouldn't be eating chemicals, uh, let me just give you one little quick solution. Um, stop using metal utensils unless necessary on your Teflon pan or any of your pans in general, unless you're doing so with care. Um, there's a lot of people out there who utilize cast iron and will tell you to never, ever, ever use a metal utensil on it. Um, and mainly because it can scrape away the seasoning. Well, all Teflon is, is a chemical version of a seasoning. Um, the seasoning that you use on a, uh, a cast iron pan is basically a polymerized grease that's been heated and burned until it uh, essentially creates a nonstick surface. And while people worry about this and that and all kinds of things, people worry about getting meat too hot and causing cancer and all that, I can tell you right now, I would rather eat uh, a seasoned pan's flakings than I would some chemical spray put out by DuPont and 3M. So try to use some actual good, high-quality wood utensils when possible. That, that handles 90% of the problems right there. You're not going to scrape those things off. Uh, if you do continue to use the Teflon pans, try to avoid using metal utensils on it, except for uh, when you absolutely have to, and uh, try to uh, make sure anything that does scrape off of that pan comes off when you're cleaning the pan versus into your food itself. 
Uh, and when you're using your cast iron pans, just use caution. Uh, don't need to scrape the bottom constantly. If you do need to get in there with a metal ladle, don't worry, the world's not going to end. That said, back to Teflon. There's honestly very little positive in using a Teflon pan. Uh, the only benefit I can see to Teflon, other than the fact that it is a nonstick option, not the nonstick option, is that it's cheap and available. And it has been uh, used extensively so much throughout the cookware industry that it's actually harder to find something not coated in it. So if you need a pan today, you can probably go find a Teflon pan. Uh, my experience is they don't last long. They're sort of cheap and disposable. I feel like I've been through more of them than any other type of pan. Um, if you get a good cast iron or carbon steel pan and take care of it, it will last you a lifetime and you will pass it on to the next generation. Uh, in fact, there are even folks that are taking cast iron pans, uh, which often have a little bit of a rougher texture on the inside, and uh, polishing them to a mirror finish, then putting a, uh, a good seasoning on them. And I'll tell you right now, they will rival any Teflon pan for nonstick. So just my two cents on the matter. Maybe Jack has a little bit more information on some of the details. I'm sure he has some opinions on this. And I'm loving, uh, loving these questions and looking forward to hearing his take. All right, guys, if you have any more questions for Josh the Renegade Butcher, send them over here to Jack at the Expert Council, Jack at the Survival Podcast, or reach out to me, Renegade Butcher. You can find me all over social media or Josh at RenegadeButcher.com. We'll catch up with you guys later. So here's how I come at this. I really think that the Teflon danger for someone that doesn't go searing hot with a Teflon pan is, is pretty much non-existent. Um, I think you you actually do have to like cook at really high temperatures to get a pan to 500 degrees. So I'm not so much worried about that. And so if you have them, I agree with Josh, like, you know, follow proper procedure and what have you. Here's what I would say about buying them in the future. They're all garbage. They eventually start to wear out. Once they start wearing out, it is going into your food. And that means it is not good for you. They're cheaply made. And there's much better options. If you don't want to maintain carbon steel like I use or cast iron like so many other people use, then look at analyzed aluminum, uh, something along those lines. And you can go uh, like really high end with something like a hex clad pan. And, and, and they're great. I mean, you know, I know anybody is for sale. But if Gordon Ramsay endorses something, it's probably good, even though he's been paid to do it. Um, so, like, you can go all the way up to, like, a hex clad. But, you know, like, the mid-grade stuff that's kind of in that world now, like the nonstick stuff from the Ninja Foodie line, and they're really good pants. I own one. And I love carbon steel. That is where I've gone with everything. And I actually prefer it to cast iron. But I love cast iron, too. I just, out of the two, I think one's a better technology for day-to-day -day use in the kitchen. So... This is the reason I would tell you to never buy a Teflon pan. One, because they're cheap as shit, and you're going to throw it away in a couple of years, and that's not good value. But two is they're not versatile. I take the same pan that I cook some eggs in today, and tomorrow I sear off a steak and throw it right in the oven. There is no Teflon pan that you can do that with safely. So just from a versatility and value, they're not worth buying. Anyway, moving along, uh, let's talk about bugging out in the Bronze Age with Professor C.J. Kilmer. Hey, this is C.J. Kilmer from the Dangerous History Podcast. 
And in this segment, I just want to talk briefly about something from ancient history that I think the TSP audience would be particularly uh, interested and perhaps amused by. And that is the earliest known instance, at least that I'm familiar of. I'm sure it's not the earliest case that this happened. But the earliest instance I'm familiar with in human history where we see people bugging out to more remote locations in the face of a Teotihuacan scenario afflicting their region. And this example comes from the so-called Bronze Age collapse that hit pretty much every major civilization around the Mediterranean in approximately the 1100s BC. And the worst of it seems to have been focused on the 1170s BC. So this is a Teotihuacan collapse scenario that afflicted not just one civilization, but multiple that were in the same, you know, region of the world and that were connected by the Mediterranean Sea. And so just to name a few of the civilizations involved, you had the so-called Hittite Empire in modern-day Turkey. You had the Minoan and Mycenaean civilizations in Greece. You had Egyptian civilization, of course, in Egypt, and a number of others of various, you know, sizes and power levels. And roughly around the 1100s BC, they all underwent a massive series of problems and catastrophes that resulted in most of these civilizations essentially ceasing to exist as identifiable civilizations. Some of these places, such as Greece, even experienced a dark age. And even the civilization that weathered the catastrophe the best, which was Egypt, went through some serious shit-hit-the-fan type of years. And so you see everything from wars to raids from people known as the Sea Peoples, who seem to have been sort of like Mediterranean Vikings, to ecological problems, economic problems, diseases, famines, all these things coming together in one giant cluster. But one of the things about this Teotihuacan collapse of over 3,000 years ago that I've always found the most interesting and kind of amusing since I learned about it was that there's clear archaeological evidence that people were bugging out, that people were leaving the big cities, which were usually coastal, and fleeing to more kind of remote, often mountainous areas where, you know, things were more primitive and rustic and less prosperous and comfortable. But during a period of Teotihuacan collapse, those more rustic, remote areas might have seemed a lot better than living in one of the big cities that was getting hit hardest by all the catastrophes. Because, of course, very often, the places that do the best when times are good and stable are the hardest hit when times go bad. Just sort of like how the areas that prosper the most during an economic boom will tend to be the areas hit the hardest when the bubble bursts and things collapse. So, like I said, there is archaeological evidence of people in some of these Mediterranean civilizations fleeing from the larger cities. You see evidence of massive population decline in many of them, and then you see evidence, physical archaeological evidence, of population increases 
in some of these more remote and rugged areas. So clear evidence that people who were able to were often bugging out of the big cities up into the boonies. So, for example, on the island of Crete, there's been evidence discovered not too many years ago of these inland kind of mountaintop villages from the collapse period. And some of these sites seem to have been previously kind of seasonal villages, you know, temporary places where maybe small numbers of mountain people went during certain times of the year. But then it appears during this collapse period, a lot of them became permanent, a lot of these settlements, and then they got more people than they used to have. So people went to the trouble and hassle of relocating to some of these remote mountain villages and things, despite it being very tough terrain and harsh winters and, you know, presumably much less comfortable, less productive, easy of agriculture. And so why would they do this unless things were hitting the fan pretty hard around them back where they used to live in the cities? in more lowland areas. So there's one particular site on a mountain that I've read about, on a mountain called Carfi, that is dated to right around 1200 BC, in sort of the earlier stages of the collapse, that was occupied by around 600 people as this started to happen. And many other so-called refuge sites have been found on the island of Crete and some other areas of the Mediterranean. And they seem to have grown in population during the years of Teodwaki collapse. And they seem to have obviously been, in some cases, at least when they were closer to the coast, these refuge sites were fortified against potential seaborne attack. So if you think the whole idea of bugging out to a bug out location during tough and dangerous times is a fairly recent and modern invention, You are wrong. There's solid evidence that this sort of thing was something people were doing as they were prepping and as they were encountering disasters and civilizational problems and even collapses over 3,000 years ago. And like I said, this is the earliest example of this phenomenon that I'm familiar with. But I would be shocked if this is not a phenomenon that actually was happening far earlier in human civilizations and even pre-civilizations. And it's just a matter of, you know, we don't have the archaeological evidence to see it and to prove it in earlier civilizations than the Bronze Age Mediterranean civilization. So I hope you found this kind of interesting and amusing if you're a prepper. And as always, check out the Dangerous History podcast if you want to get history from a point of view that is not just a bunch of establishment propaganda. It would be actually really interesting for CJ to do a whole series on this, in my opinion. I can tell you that in my research of the American Civil War, there was a tre- like a tremendous amount of this happened. There were people that picked up and moved their whole businesses, especially in the north, further north, just so that it wouldn't ever be part of the conflict, especially once the war that was supposed to end in two to three weeks didn't. Um, there were people that immediately realized that they were at a distinct disadvantage, uh, especially those with some money that was not plantation-based money, that bailed ass and went to the north before the war even started. And, you know, today we talk about this in a different way. We use a different word for it. We think a bug out is leaving your house. 
because, you know, the blue helmets came or something in this prepper space. We have a lot of that mindset. The word you're looking for here, really, when it happens en masse, is refugees. And, of course, just like everything else, the left has ruined what that word means. They've completely ruined what that word means. But when you have these war-torn countries and people leave, they're bugging out. That's what a lot of the people in Ukraine did, by the way. They bugged out either east or west, depending on who they were. And you want the truth about it? Most of the old men, they're too old for service, kids and women went to the east. Okay? Or west, I'm sorry, went to the west. And most of the young men went to Russia. Because if they tried to go out the other way, they were grabbed into conscription. Some of them found out, though, that, you know, like I keep saying, I'm not saying there's a good side in this at all. They, they got to Russia, and they were put in the Russian military through conscription. It's happened both directions. Just saying. So that's another example that's going on right now. And there's plenty of times where there's been wars and rumors of wars where the upwardly mobile bugged out. Nazi Germany. There was a massive number of people who saw the writing on the wall and got out while the getting was good. And this is the other thing that you'll find. The places they're going often are not very friendly toward them. But they do it anyway. Because I'd rather go somewhere where people are unfriendly to me than a place where people have a stated goal to kill me. Anyway, moving on, let's now talk about planting trees when you have clay pan soil. I don't think it's really that difficult to deal with, but what does Nick Ferguson have to say? Nick Ferguson from RarePlantStore.com here with a quick answer for John on trees that grow in soil with a clay pan layer. And he writes, what are some good shade and fodder trees that will adapt to a clay pan layer four to six feet below the surface? Info, USDA Zone 9, full sun, we have been getting... 6 to 12 inches of rain November through February, and only 2 to 4 inches outside that window. I can supplement irrigation, but would prefer not to, or at least keep it limited. Well, as far as the clay pan layer goes, pretty much all of the trees I know of will handle soils like that with no issue. The issue that you're probably going to run into is irrigation. So as long as you can irrigate them, that's probably not an issue, a problem at all. Otherwise, you know, it sounds like you're in a desert or arid environment, one of the best resources for areas like that is to contact your local ag extension agency and ask them what kinds of trees work well in your area. And get those growing, and then once those are growing, you've got a little bit of a nursery tree line or tree cluster, and then you can branch out from there. See what I did there? Uh, but i got to say, one of my favorite dual-purpose trees that makes for a fantastic shade tree just not a super tall one, and a good fodder tree is lacebark elm. That's Ulmus parvifolia. I'm trialing softwood cuttings this year, and if I'm successful, I'll be one of the only places who can offer affordable lacebark elm trees that I've been able to find. And let me tell you, I've been looking for wholesale nurseries who sell them by the thousands, and I just can't freaking find anybody who sells trees for less than 40 bucks. It's insane. And that just doesn't work for me. I can imagine those prices don't work for most people. So let's keep our collective fingers crossed that I'm successful. 
And we have an affordable option for one of my favorite trees for landscaping that doubles as a fantastic fodder tree as well. That's drought tolerant. That makes for a great species to plant near houses and concrete and other structures because they don't have those massive invasive roots. Uh, so coming back to your question, the short answer, I think the clay pan is mostly a non-issue once you get down to brass tacks. I wouldn't sweat it. Your bigger issue is probably going to be lack of water. And I expect there's a bunch of other concerns that I just don't know about because I don't know exactly where you are. I'd guess you're in the desert southwest or Texas. So I'd say get them some irrigation and rock and roll. Hope that helps you have some peace of mind and get you to planting some trees. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com. Do good things. So here, here's my thoughts on this. Clay pan soil is not a challenge for trees at all, especially trees with good root structure and, and strong, deep-growing taproot systems. In an ideal situation, to get the maximum amount of penetration, you would always want to plant a tree where it's going to grow from seed or from a stuck cutting where the rooting roots are all fresh. So you're talking about taking a you know, cutting. of A lot of these fodder trees, uh, like poplar and willow, you can just take cuttings at the right time, stick them in the ground, and they'll grow. And that's almost as good as propagation from seed as far as the root penetration. But that said, penetrating clay for a tree is a joke. Once it starts to get established, that is. Trees penetrate and crack rock. Rock. So clay, they can handle clay. Now, you didn't say where you're from, and Nick was talking about irrigation also. Here's, here's what I think, depending on, unless you're going to tell me you are pure desert. It is most likely the case that you can, can and should install your irrigation in a manner in which you intend to be able to repurpose it later. Because once these trees are established and they get down to uh, a deep enough depth, depth, they should become drought-resistant, if not immune. If we add to it things like water-infiltrating earthworks like swales upgrade, and we can infiltrate water significantly into the soil, because we can, even though it's clay pan, and those trees will help us by opening up carbon pathways, we can really extend that reality. Clay is actually a thing that people hate, but it's a wonderful soil type to work with because once you break up the compaction, it is very good at retaining moisture compared to a lot of other soil types. So it's much easier for a tree to penetrate a sandy loam, but a sandy loam will never hold as much water at depth as a, a clay soil. The other thing I would advise you to do is this is probably about the driest time of the year for you. Dig a hole somewhere where these trees are going to go. Just straight down, tap hole. See how far you have to go before you find moisture in the soil. If you go down a foot, and soil's moist at the driest time of the year, you're one season of irrigation away from not having to worry about your trees. And certainly when you got trees that are four and five years old, they're completely drought-proofed in that situation. But like, I, like Nick, I don't know exactly what your situation is. If you want to follow up with us on that one, we might be able to give you some more information. Uh, what I would tell you, though, if you're in a situation where you're going down two, three foot, and your soil's bone dry then the tree you don't really want to look at for this as far as a fodder tree is willow. You will, if you are in that situation through your dry season to keep willow alive, 
especially if you want it to be productive for fodder, you will irrigate forever. You will irrigate unless you do some other things to change that nature of the soil. You'll irrigate forever. Poplar and mulberry have deeper root systems than willow, and they can be more drought tolerant. That's my experience anyway. With that, let's go on and talk about DeWalt generic form batteries with Tim Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another expert counsel segment, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Stallion, and he says... Is there a generic alternative for DeWalt 20-volt max batteries that works? Thanks for any info, Stallion. Well, Stallion, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> so I have tested two different brands of DeWalt knockoff batteries. One worked great. One was horrible. Let's start with the one that was absolutely horrible. So this one was actually sent to me by a company to test out. They said, hey... We have a 9 amp hour flex volt, 60 volt, 20 volt, DeWalt knockoff that is every bit as good. The two brand names that this company sells under are DeVrig, D-E-V-R-I-G, and Longfit. There's probably more than that. They all look exactly the same. In the picture, it looks just like a 9 amp hour battery. When it shows up, it looks just like a 6 amp hour battery. When you weigh it, it weighs as much as a 5 amp hour battery. You're starting to get the uh, gist of it here. So, first off, price on their cheap ones are 80 bucks compared to the DeWalt at 209 So, it can be rather tempting to think, hey, I'd like to try this. So, I ran a bunch of comparisons side-by-side side for capacity, runtime, recharge time, and the thing failed miserably. It's advertised as a 9 amp hour. And when you compare it to a typical DeWalt 5 amp hour, it's about identical, right in that ballpark. So my biggest concern with a company like that is if they're advertising it as a 9 amp hour battery and it's really just a 5 amp hour battery, what other corners have they cut? So I tore it apart trying to find the cell numbers inside. Everything was generic. There wasn't a single number in there that I could get to look things up online. So that's where my experiment with that ended. Totally wouldn't recommend the DeVrig or the Longfit. Now, for the good news, Waitley, W-A-I-T-E-L-Y. They are also on Amazon. Sent links to Jack for the 5 amp hour and the 6 amp hour 2 packs. So I bought my very first DeWalt knockoff just about a year and a half ago now. It was just a single 5 amp hour battery. Wanted to do some testing. Had heard some good things from some other TSP community members, including Chicken Hawk. They said, you got to give these a shot. And for 30 bucks a battery at the time, ah, you couldn't go wrong. So I ran the test on them. These were 5 amp hour batteries, and they all ran within 10 to 15% of the typical DeWalt battery. So, you know... 10% less in run time, 10% longer in recharge time. So nothing that bad. The thing was, you can get right now, so what's available in Waitley is a two-pack of six amp hours for 60 bucks, so 30 bucks a piece. Whereas the DeWalt right now is a two-pack for $200, $100 a piece, 70% cheaper. So everybody said, great, looks equal in all things for the most part. 
way better in price. How's it going to work a year later? Well, I ran that basically nonstop, not any time I had to use my little DeWalt handheld blower over the last year and a half, that Waitley battery has been permanently installed in there so that I know it's going to get quite a bit of use. Cleaning up around the garage, blowing crap off the of sidewalks when we do lawns, that kind of thing. So I, I used, I didn't use it hard, but I used it a lot. We went back this year. I just redid the test, actually, so this was a good question to answer. And all the numbers were basically the same. So a year later, I took a DeWalt 5 amp hour battery that I was using last year, retested it this year, retested the 5 amp hour Waitley battery this year, and everything was within 10% of one another. And the prices were basically just the same. So based on an entire year and a bit, almost a year and a half worth of testing, I would say if you can get two years out of the Waitley and you can get five years out of a DeWalt, you're still money in. So if you're looking for something that isn't necessarily super high drain or really, really hot, I think it was Jack actually commented on my video a while back, said the difference in the weight was probably just a little smaller heat sink. And I think he's probably right. But for most homeowners and, you know, everyday Joe users of DeWalt batteries, the Waitley has definitely been the way to go. If you look up online, look up Waitley, and if that one doesn't happen to be in stock, look for one that's absolutely identical. You can tell they come out of the same factory, same colors, same logo. They just change the name of the product once in a while. But Waitley's been the one I've worked with. Super happy. So I hope that helps because if we can save money on things and they're good enough, it's great. It does pay to buy quality, but in this instance, Sometimes you can save some money on batteries because, boy, don't they kill you. So I hope that helps, guys. Uh, love answering these questions. Keep them coming. Always look forward to getting these in the inbox to answer for you. Uh, if you want to support what I'm doing or check out what I'm doing, uh, search in your podcast feed. Look for Workshop Radio. We recently hit 300 episodes and rebranded the Workshop Podcast to the Workshop Radio, the soundtrack of getting stuff done. So... Appreciate your support, guys, and just keep the questions coming. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I do have that link in the show notes, and I'm personally going to buy a set of these. I, I would tell you getting 90% of the performance at 70% off the cost is a good price-to-value ratio. Um, I do think that if, based on the heat issues... That it's exactly what I said, and Tim seems to agree, that the DeWalt batteries probably have a little bit more heat sink uh, mass in them. And so if you were using these really hard on a daily basis, I think that the heat would end up causing the battery pack to suffer faster. But I think that is, that is directly attributable to the heat sink capability of the one battery over the other. So unless you're, you're talking about putting these into like a drill driver or I'm sorry, like an impact driver, and you're going to be constantly ramboing bolts with it or something, I, I, I have a hard time seeing these things not having comparable lifetimes to the DeWalt battery. If you're going to be a real heavy user, I think that that might switch around. All right, so this is usually where Jack gives you some kind of real and in, you know intellectual analysis of something or analyzes the quarters, and not this time. Again, I'm going to play right now for you. Two things. First is going to be Nicole Sauce roasting me, and second is going to be my wife 
which was a big deal for her to publicly speak, and I thought she did a great job, so I'll play that for you. I'll come back with a few final words, and we'll sign off, and then we will talk to each other again on a live stream uh, next Monday. So here you go. So the first time I met Jack, I was standing right here, and he didn't talk to me. Why didn't he talk to me? Can you see me at all right now, Jack? Because he's blind. That's okay. I just figured he was overwhelmed with all the people coming onto his property and that he needed space. And as an introvert, I gave him space and didn't talk to him for the rest of the night. Somehow we ended up being friends, though. Welcome to the 15-year anniversary. I'm Nicole Sauce. And you may have heard me on a Friday. So 15 years of podcasting. Did you have any idea when you got into your car and started talking that you were going to be sitting here eating ribs with a bunch of people who said, fuck my job, I'll just start a side hustle. I definitely didn't see that coming when you were running old ladies off the road from that TDI wagon. That got great gas mileage at the expense of killing polar bears. And based on a statistic that I've made up completely out of thin air, I know that today there are fewer polar bears because of that commute. We also know that it was exacerbated by the fact that Volkswagen was lying about their emissions testing. I bought another one after they lied. And I think we can all agree that Jack is a jerk, right? I mean, no, really, he's a jerk. He's trying to make it into a joke, but let's face it, it just makes him feel better about all those angry emails he sends people. He's such a jerk that he could not even get people to join his cult at Perma Ethos. Although, from what I understand, there's a new Waco-style strategy coming right now. We ain't coming out! We're coming forward. So, failed communes aside, we know that Jack is a great marketer, right? I mean, helping you live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't, is one of the most succinct clear taglines we've ever heard in our lives. It's right up there with nothing sucks like an Electrolux. (laughs) Or imagine more snacks than you can imagine. (laughs) Pure gold. Pure gold. If you need marketing advice, this is the guy to talk to. And it's your opportunity to do that tonight. Perhaps he can come up with a four or five paragraph long tagline for you. (laughs) And let's remember that it's not just about survival podcasts. It's the survival podcast. It's the Ohio state of survival podcasts. Without the, it wouldn't be TSP. It would just be SP, which stands for swimming pools. Jack doesn't know enough about swimming pools to do a whole podcast about that. And we know that he doesn't know much about 
swimming pools because without his lovely wife, Dorothy, he wouldn't have one, would he? So yeah, helping you live a better life if time gets tough or even if they don't. And then he mutes his mic, says, unless you're a dumbass, then go kill yourself with the claw end of a hammer. <laughs> so speaking of swimming pool fans, Dorothy, you're not just his princess, you're also his bride. It's inconceivable, however, how he found such a wonderful, supportive wife. Back to his marketing genius. We know Jack just walked up to Dorothy in a bar and said, Hey, baby, I make minimum wage digging holes for telecoms. But I've been saving my per diem and one day I'm going to be rich. I'm going to get rich by shilling hydroxychloroquine. Want to dance? <laughs> Dorothy, even though she couldn't hear him over the loud, booming music, saw that look in his eye that was unmistakable. It was unmistakable. Utter and complete blindness. <laughs> but in his good eye, she thought she saw a spark of something. So she gave him a shot. Jack's from Pottsville, Pennsylvania. We all know that, right? Yeah. P.A. They're famous for their beer. And you know what else they're famous for? Their beer. That's where he learned how to skin a buck, how to run a trot line. Because a country boy can survive. Jack's upbringing where his wizard grandpa was able to heal wounds with mere plants. And, the, and his grandma made him bury live fish when he planted things in the garden while she overcooked dinner. <laughs> made him especially suited for podcasting about the topic of what? Survival. Skipping school to hunt and stealing copper to fund car purchases prepared him for his army days where he flipped trucks down hills in Honduras and boiled rice on the roof of tents. 63 Sierra! He's a man that's obviously born in the wrong time. And he can quote books he read decades ago. He knows more history than many professors and remembers every character from 90s sitcoms. (laughs) We call him Spiracodamus because of his uncanny success inaccurately predicting world events, yet the motherfucker can't remember where he put his tape measure (laughs) that he just had in his hands five minutes ago. I think I lost the one for the bocce ball. It's a freaking miracle if he remembers to turn a hose off. So these days, Jack spends time deep diving into topics like Ketovore, biochar, artificial intelligence, Bitcoin, homeschooling, his grandkids, which will make his high school reunion way easier in the future, the schedule of dropping them off. Of course, he maniacally jumps from new passion to shiny new passion, like an ADHD adult teenager smoking meth. Ask me how I know. How do you know? 
You got to come to a workshop to know what that's all about. Now, if the Biden presidency has taught us anything, it's that while slow and dangerous behind the wheel, senior citizens can still serve a purpose. So, Jack, I'm looking forward to your 50th anniversary, even if it's just incoherent mumbling and filling up diapers. Congratulations on your 15 years. All right, let's give them a round of applause for 15 years. So I understand that Dorothy would like to have a few words to say as well. So here you go. I'm not funny. Okay, so so I don't do this. And I will tell you that when I was in high school and they told me I had to get in front of the class, I just told my teacher, just give me an F because I'm not doing it. And I was talking to my son today and he goes, mom, don't get mad. Now he's in his thirties. He's like, I did the same thing. I'm like, I don't care. So this, I don't do this. So, and the other thing you need to know me, I'm a crier. So I got my napkins. Um, so this is, Hey, anyway, We've been together 27 years, over a million minutes. 11 million minutes. Sometimes 27 years didn't feel like it was long enough. <laughs> so we calculated minutes. Um, and so when you're married that long, sometimes you don't tell each other. Oh, where's my Kleenex? <laughs> you take each other for granted, and you don't tell each other how special they are. And I just want my Jack to know that um, I appreciate all his hard work. He works his ass off. And I feel very blessed for the life he's given us. And lastly, I really want to thank you guys for coming to celebrate this with us. Oh, good God. <laughs> anyway, huh? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Okay, Nicole Nicole told us when you feel like you got to cry, you got to squeeze your butt cheeks. I never remember, so let's give it a try. Okay, very good. So, anyway, I just really wanted you to know how proud I am of you. And then I know you'll work your ass off. and. Um, I appreciate it, and I appreciate our life, and I appreciate all y'all, and um, shit, stop. <laughs> and I really want to thank you guys for coming out and celebrating this with us. And I know you all know, having seen Jackson karaoke, that he really is the voice singing the Unloose the Goose jingle. <laughs> Let's have some fun, guys. Thank you. So there's a couple things in that. One, getting roasted was awesome. And Nicole, I think, like I said, could have a career doing that for a living. Uh, it was fantastic. That was also a crowdsourced roasting. There was a lot of, uh, apparently, chicanery going on on the back channels through Telegram. 
uh, to come up with uh, zinger after zinger after zinger that were all at least conceptually accurate. And I enjoyed uh, that very, very much. Like I said, the first, I'm like, oh, a joke. And then, oh, I see where we're going. It was so much fun. Second, I am so proud of my wife. And after 15 years and 3,300 and what is it, 44, 46 episodes, you finally got to hear the Survival Podcast wife on the Survival Podcast. Uh, she did a fantastic job, opens up with I'm Not Funny, immediately gets a laugh, gets multiple laughs all the way through it, and just did a fantastic job. I played that for a variety of reasons. One, you guys have asked me a lot of times to get Dorothy on there. Well, here it happened, because she didn't know. Right? And uh, I thought it was fun, and I thought, but I also thought it gave you a window, a little tiny window into what it's like to be part of a TSP event. Now, this was a four-hour party at a cool place, but I will remind you, Tickets will go on sale in September for TSP 23, and it's going to be epic. I have already booked speakers that take this to another level from anything we've ever done before. Matt Powers is in. Okay, Matt Powers, who we just had on, Soil Genius, he is in. He will be doing a presentation. Steven Reisner is like, that. that's Potent Ponics guy. This guy's amazing. He's like 90%. I'm waiting for final confirmation. He's making sure he's not going to be traveling. Out of the country, because that's the time of year where sometimes he does. Uh, but he's mostly, Nick Ferguson will be here, that's typical, but he's amazing. Joel Riles will be presenting. C.J. Kilmer will be presenting. And I'll tell you, more is coming. But it's as much worth coming for stuff like you just heard. I make Nicole Sauce mistress of ceremonies for my workshops, because she does an amazing job and lets me do other things. But she doesn't call herself the mistress of, uh, of, of ceremonies. She calls herself mistress of fuckery. And you just heard a little tiny bit of it. You will never find a place. I, I, will, no, I don't even feel like I'm out on a limb saying this. I am holding on to the core of the tree when I say this. right? I'm in a solid foundation. You will never find an event where people form relationships that last a lifetime the way that you will at one of our events. If you can come this year, pay attention and be ready because when we put tickets on sale, they generally sell out in less than an hour, sometimes less than 10 minutes. We made a decision last year, actually the year before, to scale back from 65 seats to 50. It works so well. Dorothy and I have talked about it. We don't like telling people no. And every year I have to tell people no who are people I know on a first name basis and I love them. But we have determined that's the capacity to be able to do things the way that we want to get them done. And for me to actually be able to talk to everybody and for us not to be stressed out. And for the property to not be overloaded. So if you want to experience what this is like in real life, realize you're competing with people for seats who have been to almost every single one of them. I think Jake Robinson's been to every one we've ever done except for two. Um, just to give you an example, we have a huge repeat rate, and there's a reason. And one thing I want to say about this, kind of priming the pump, and I'll do this a couple times leading up to putting tickets on sale and people coming in. We had some people at the last one that felt like I was ignoring them. And I don't know why, and they didn't really give me a chance to fix it, so it is what it is. But I don't ever want anybody to legitimately feel that way. So one thing that's really important to remember, when you meet me in a public space with more than a couple people in it, I mean, even a small group. 
I can't see out of my left eye. You can be standing over there waving and thumbs up and going, hey, and you might think I'm just the biggest dick in the world. I just can't see past the right edge of my nose. Okay, so please understand that if you're ever at an event, if you feel like I'm ignoring you, I don't ever want to feel anybody to ever feel that way. I do everything I can to spend time with people, to listen to everybody's stories, to talk to them, to hear them, to answer questions. And that, so that is anywhere because I'm announcing something else here at the end. Self-Reliance Festival. Uh, I think it's August, uh, I'm sorry, October 14 and 15 uh, at Special Operations Equipment. I will be there too. So you get two chances this fall to come meet with me and some other cool people. So I just wanted you to know that. I'll be putting out, maybe today, probably Monday, a post about that on my site where you can get tickets and what have you. So uh, keep an eye out for that as well. So if you're in the Tennessee area, especially near Camden, that's an easy one, and it's not really expensive to come to. But uh, the dates for TSP 23 are going to be a little different this year. Usually it's the week of the 11th. It's usually Veterans Day and the Marine Corps birthday of that week, right? This year the dates are going to be November 1st through the 5th, so effectively it's just a week earlier. We did that to accommodate a staff member who wasn't unable to get off of work. Uh, this may help. I hear from people every year, you always do it the week of elk season or deer season or whatever. So we moved it up a week. So um, if you are planning for it, that's where you need to st start looking uh, right now for making time. Uh, November 1st is Wednesday. Uh, on Wednesdays, we don't do a lot. It's just basically if you're camping, you set up. I put a bunch of brats and stuff on the grill. We have beers and drinks out, and everybody's just a bullshit time to get together. And, and, and for a lot of people, it's seeing somebody you ain't seen, you know, people, other friends you haven't seen for a year. Uh, and then uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, which is the second, third, and fourth, are the actual workshop days. And, you know, we say the fifth, but the fifth is pack your shit up and go home and get off my property by 1030 a.m. And that's not to be nasty or mean or anything. It's just like, let's put our life together. I mean, the first thing Dorothy and I do after the last person's gone is take a nap uh, after that uh, thing. Because is 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 where it, you know, if you come if you've been to one, you know you're kind of tired at the end of it, supercharged with ideas and stuff, but you're also tired. Um, we have a week of work into it directly leading up to it, and we have weeks of work leading up to it, and it's kind of like. Oh, so, anyway, I just wanted to, to announce that again because I know I've said the dates before. And we will probably put tickets on sale around mid-September. And we will definitely announce the dates and the full schedule and everything by the end of August. Uh, but there's a lot of lot goes on to putting these together. Anyway, I really appreciate y'all. Um, I want to tell you that uh, the, the gift that I was given, again, is just a wonderful thing. I'm hoping to get it put together today. I went and picked it up. Uh, from Tim's uh, dome home yesterday, and uh, we had a, a wonderful time with Tim and Mary, who many of y'all know is Karaoke Tim, uh, out at their place uh, yesterday afternoon. And uh, Dorothy and I had recorded a video uh, thanking all of you guys that, that chipped in on that, and it was a little bit clunky, so I think maybe when we get that uh, put together, we'll uh, redo that video and release it. So thank you, all of you guys that chipped in on that. Uh, again, that was you couldn't have done better for something I really wanted, and I I had just found the one that you guys got me, and I was going to buy one probably at the end of the year, and uh, so, I mean, you couldn't have done better, and, and thank you to all of you that chipped on it. Thank you, many thanks. 
to my buddy David, who you heard heckling from the audience in the middle of the roast and in the middle of my wife talking, because uh, he was the one that told everybody that I had just texted him and said, man, i got to get one of these. Anyway, with that, guys, I'll catch you Monday with another episode. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.